0: Well, I could stay here and keep singing those beautiful songs of worship. Uh, as I was thinking about that, this guy who died and went to heaven, and Peter welcomed him, and, and he offered to give him a tour of heaven. And, and uh, he said, what would you like to see? And he said, well, I want to see where, where worship is happening. And so he, uh, he took him to this big room. It was huge. There were a lot of people that were lights, and there was smoke and there was sound and there was loud music and, and there was a lot of excitement and 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 he went in uh and and kind of went in and notice uh and enjoyed that for a little while and he said what is this room he says well this is the hillsong room he said oh okay uh and, and so he said well i, I want to continue the tour so he took him to the tour and, and they went to another very very large room and they had the most giant uh pipe organ that you'd ever seen and there was this huge choir of voices and people were sitting there properly. And when this man with Peter walked in, they, they kind of acknowledged him with, with, a, with a nod. And, and, uh, and, and there was this beautiful singing that was coming from there. And, and he said, you know, what is this? He says, well, this is the, this, this is the Presbyterian room. He said, okay. So then went to another room, and, and in that room uh, there was a, a lot of people dancing, and it was like a, like a rhythmic dance. There were drums, and, and they were synchronized in their dancing, it was very colorful. And he said, Well, what does this room do? Well, this is African worship. I said, Oh, cool. So then they went to another room, and and uh, there was a cappella singing. There were no instruments. People were singing, harmonizing, and and it sounded beautiful, and uh, they welcomed him. And, and and he said, what is the room? Well, this is the Church of Christ room. I said, okay. And then he heard some music in another room that really attracted him, really connected with him. He said, I, I like what... What I hear in that room, and, and he went over there, and there were gospel songs that were being sung, and and uh, and he said, I want to go in there because I, I, I like the music. He goes, shh, no. He goes, those are the Southern Baptists. they think they're the only ones here, you know. <laughs> and I think about the fact that sometimes we think we have a corner on the truth. Sometimes we think that our narrow way of thinking of worship is, is our way, the way we've Uh, Grown up, or the way that we do it. Uh, But we know that that's not the way heaven's going to be. We we talked about that last Sunday. There was this vision of John where he saw in heaven this great multitude that no one could count. They were from every language and every nation, every people group, every tribe, and they were together. And all of them were shouting, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And I imagine that all of those people have been rescued from different nations and tribes and languages, maybe even denominations, singing to the Lord and acknowledging His worthiness. We've been talking in our series of reengage Gather about worship. A couple of Sundays ago, we talked about who we worship. Last Sunday, we talked about why we worship. We, talked, we saw that passage in Revelation 7, uh, 9 and 10. And today, we're going to talk about how we worship, and, and as I think about that subject, I realize that it's really a whole nother series. I, I could preach more than one sermon in this, but we're gonna try in, in the next 30 minutes or so to talk about how we worship, and I want to invite you to go with me to Romans chapter 12, verse one and two. That's our primary text for today, and it reads like this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. How do we worship God? Paul writes to the church and tells them. Notice there's nothing here about music styles. He said, we worship God as a response to his love, in view of his mercy, in view of his grace. We worship God by offering ourselves as living sacrifices, a living sacrifice. We worship God by leading holy lives. That's how Christians should worship. That's how the church in Rome was invited to worship. That's how Christ's followers today are urged to worship him. The first 11 chapters of Romans, as you know, uh, Paul is unpacking the gospel. He's talking about how sinful we all are. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And then he talks about the inability of the Mosaic law to make us right with God that all of the laws and all of the commandments and all of the rituals and sacrifices that were prescribed by Moses are not able to make us right with God, not because there's something wrong with the law, but because we're sinners. And that the only way that we can be made right with God is through Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ has kept the law, that he has been holy, that, that he lived the life that pleased God, and then he went to the cross, and at the cross he poured his life out on our behalf, he died for us. And when we trust him, when we trust in who he is and what he did for us, then we can be made right with God. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus has come. That's the grace of God offered at the cross. And so then we get to chapter 12, and and Paul says, therefore, therefore, because of the good news, because this theological truths about the gospel, therefore, these are the implications. This is the way that you respond. This is the way that you worship. Because God has done this in Jesus, then we get to do this as a response. That's the way that he responds or that he urges us. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. So here's the question. How do we worship a God who has given it all for us? How do we worship a God who's poured out his life for us? By pouring our lives for him, by living for him. As we worship a triune God, I submit to you that Christian worship has three dimensions. We're going to talk about worship in 3D and I made this little uh, homemade drawing to help us talk about this. I realize it could be probably three different sermons, but I'm going to try to squeeze it in the time we have left. The, the first one is the practical dimension, the way that we live. When someone asks you, where do you worship, you might answer at Calvary McCallan or wherever you go to church, whatever you gather to worship. And I would say that's probably a correct answer, but it is an incomplete answer. If someone were to ask you, where do you worship? Then I think you should answer on Sunday mornings at Calvary McAllen, but on Mondays at work, on Mondays at school, on, 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 on in the evenings at the family table, on Wednesday morning at the gym, not that you are having chapel there, not that you are reading the Bible on the clock and cheating your boss, but, but that you are working as an act of worship. That, that you are exercising as an act of worship. That you are with your family, serving them as an act of worship. That, that you are at the soccer practice as an act of worship. That, that you are at the golf course as an act of worship. That you are out there fishing, Dr. Heflin, as an act of worship that wherever you are during the week, you are worshiping. When we think that worship is just what happens at church on Sundays, then our view of worship is too narrow. When you hear the word worship and the only thing you think about is church music or praise songs, then your view of worship is not a biblical one because Christian worship is broader than church services. New Testament worship is bigger than church songs, and praise songs. What the Bible says worship is is the way we live. Paul tells the, the Roman believers that their true and proper worship is the offering of their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The law of Moses prescribed multiple sacrifices of animals. There were lambs and bulls and rams that were to be offered, that were to be without blemish, and they were to be offered on the altar and when the blood of that little uh, innocent animal was shed, it was a symbol of a life that was being poured out. All of those sacrifices of animals were pointing forward to the highest, most perfect, most excellent sacrifice that has ever been offered, Jesus on the cross of Calvary. All of those sacrifices were pointing to the lamb who, who is without sin who was slain for the sins of the world and when jesus was on the cross pouring out his life for you and me he said it is finished it is complete i have completed your redemption i have done everything that's necessary i have fulfilled everything that those sacrifices were pointing to that were prophesying about there is no more need after Jesus dies on the cross. There is no more need for animal sacrifices. There's no more need for a temple. There's no more need for an altar. There's no more need for priests to offer sacrifices. So, as the Jewish Christians are there in Rome thinking, well, how do we worship now? How do we worship in this New Testament era? And Paul says, by offering your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. We worship God by pouring out our lives to him. Not dead animals, but living people. More important that the songs that we sing on Sunday is the way that we live during the week. More important that the sermons that we preach on Sunday or hear on Sunday is the way that we talk and walk during the week. This was true in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament idea. So many times the prophets told God's people that God was not pleased with their sacrifices. God is not pleased with your fasting because you oppress the poor, because you commit injustice, because you live immorally, because you worship other idols, because you ignore my Sabbath. He said, I'm not pleased with your sacrifices. I'm not pleased with your worship at the temple because of the way you live when you're not in the temple. I love the story of Daniel. I've been reading through that book this week and uh, there's this wonderful story that you're familiar with in Daniel 6 where where he go he, he's put in the lion's den because he prays against the law. And we, we always focus on that idea that Daniel prayed in spite of the royal decree and he was put in the lion's den. And we admire that. And of course, we admire the fact that God uh, delivered him from the lion's mouth. But But if you... Back up a little bit, then you realize that not only is his prayer exceptional, but his life testimony is. Look at Daniel chapter six, verse three. It says, now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and satraps by his his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom, At this, the administrators and satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Here was Daniel in a Medo-Persian environment, pagan environment. Uh, All of, of the forces around him were running against his faith. He was by far a religious minority and yet the Bible tells us his integrity was impeccable. See, Daniel was not just a self-righteous guy that, that was pious, pie in the sky that was praying three times a day. In his daily life, he honored God. In his work, he honored God. In his testimony, he honored God. In his leadership, he honored God. His life was consistent with his prayer. That's Worship, that's true and proper worship. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice. Paul refers to that connection when he uh, asks men to pray. In First Timothy 2.8 he says, therefore I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. What does that mean, lifting up holy hands? Holy hands are a symbol of lives that have been lived for him. Lives that have been lived in a holy way lives that have been used for the honor and glory of God. So that's true and proper worship. That's living sacrifices. That's, that's a holy worship that pleases God. How is your practical dimension, your practical worship dimension in your life? Are you living every day as an act of worship? Everything that you do, is it being offered to God as an act of worship? I'm not talking about legalism. I'm not talking about rules. I'm talking about a response to a God that poured it all for you. Is he worthy? Is the one who, who, who lived a holy life and died on the cross, forgiving your sins so that you could live a different kind of life, so you could be transformed and changed, is he worthy of you worshiping him with the way that you live every day? The second dimension is the private dimension, the way that we pause. I believe that our corporate worship is only as strong as a private worship of the individuals that gather together. Our time alone with God. This image of offering your bodies as a living sacrifice is, is the image of bringing our lives to the altar as a living sacrifice. We present our bodies. D.L. Uh, Moody said that the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep crawling off the altar. Is that, that's true, isn't it? You know, a dead sacrifice stays on the altar until somebody removes it. But a living sacrifice tends to slither off. We, we might be here today and we say, oh, God, take my mind, take my heart, take my hands, my feet, my all. I'm at the altar. I'm yours. I'm consecrated. And then on Monday, we've slipped off. And that's why we cannot depend on a weekly gathering to stay in worship. We, we go every day to that altar. We pause every day to say, Lord, I'm getting back on the altar, I slipped off last night. I I got off yesterday, but I'm gonna get back on the altar. I'm gonna be a living sacrifice today. I'm gonna offer my body, and this was radical because in Greek thinking there was a dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. They thought that the body was a a, a determined to, to the spirit, but the good news of the gospel is that the gospel is holistic. God doesn't just save your spirit. God doesn't just redeem your soul. He redeems your body. The good news of the gospel is that the God of the universe didn't just come in spirit. He came in the flesh. He became flesh. The creator of all things physical took on a physical body. And this incarnate word, this incarnate Jesus, when he redeemed you, he redeemed your entire person, spirit, soul and mind and body in such a way that our bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Did you know that? Did you know that if you trusted Jesus as your Savior and Lord, if you've given your life over to Jesus, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, do you not know that your bodies, not your spirits, but your bodies, are temples of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have received from God, yet you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Worship is physical as much as it is spiritual. People often have high respect for church buildings. This is a beautiful building, we're so thankful for it. And, 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 and we take pride, we, wanna, we want it to look nice, we want it to look clean, that, that's great. We call it the house of God. Sometimes people call it the sanctuary. But the, 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 the reality is when we get done here today and we leave, God's not going to stay back here. He goes with you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I get a, a kick out of people who's, who sometimes are in church buildings and, and they get talking, they get carried away, and they say, hey, don't talk like that. You're in church hey, tell the truth, you're in church. And I'm like, well, you're in church whether you're at the HEB parking lot or in your backyard or in your living room because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So don't talk like that ever. (laughs) Don't lie ever. Whatever you're not willing to do in this building, you shouldn't do anywhere because you are the temple of the Holy Spirit and we should care for them. That's why... You know, when, whatever we do, if I, if I go to the gym in the morning, it's an act of worship. It feels like a sacrifice. It feels like I'm pouring out my life there. But, but it's an act of worship because it's, my body's a the temple of the Holy Spirit. When we eat, it should be an act of worship. I love food. I, my background is half Italian, half Mexican. We don't do anything without food. We love to feast. You know, the Bible says that whether we eat or drink, we should do it all to the glory of God. So when we have a good meal, when we have an abundant table, and we break bread, and we enjoy, and we laugh, and we get full, we honor God with that. But then we should honor God the next day with an oatmeal breakfast and a salad for lunch. We should take care of our bodies because it's a temple of the Holy Spirit. When you keep your eyes clean, you're honoring the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you keep your body free from immorality, you're honoring the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you keep harmful substances away from your body, you're honoring the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not about rules, it's not about legalism. It's about understanding who lives in you. It's true and proper worship. It is a way of a living sacrifice. And we do that in our daily time with God. When we meet alone with him, we offer ourselves in worship. That's the way that we keep our body in check. The Bible says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It is in our daily time alone with God that God transforms our mind, transforms our way of thinking, begins to change our perspective. One of my favorite professors in seminary was Calvin Miller. He was my spiritual formations professor. He wrote a little paperback book that was so, uh, for me, it made such an impact. It was called "The Table of Inwardness," and in his little paperback, he he kind of walks through Psalm 23. Uh, but one of my favorite parts of that is when he talks about the table. He says, "You prepare a table uh, in the presence of my enemies, before me in the presence of my enemies," yeah, and. My cup runs over, and, and he pictures that that table is a table in the wilderness, where there are enemies all around him, but at the table, there is provision. At the table, the host is having fellowship with his guests. The psalmist is at the table of inwardness, at the table in the wilderness, having communion with God who is a shepherd in whose house he will dwell forever, the one that provides mercy and goodness all the rest of the days of his life, but, but at this moment he pauses to be at the table and to commune, even while the enemies are waiting to trap, waiting to tempt, waiting to trip, he is sitting in the presence of his enemy having communion with his Lord it's a powerful picture and it's affected how i think of my time alone with god a time of communion a time of at the table i like to make my coffee in the morning and then i get my my device and i look up my reading plan i have this reading plan that i follow through the bible in one year i never finish in one year uh, it's because that's not the point for me it's not how fast i can read it but how i can have god speak to me and 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 Calvin Miller really reinforced in me this desire for journaling. And so I've been journaling for a long time and and I get my pen and and the journal and I write my reflections of, of what the passage says, how God speaks to me, my response to him, maybe a prayer, and it's a powerful thing. My question for you today is how is the private worship dimension in your life? How are you worshiping God spending time alone with him during the week. Is he worthy? He's, he's set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. He wants to fill your cup. He wants your cup to run over so that you'll have enough provision for the day. Are you meeting with him? The private dimension of worship is the way we pause. And then third and final The public dimension. It's the way that we gather. As living sacrifices, we worship every day in everything we do. We worship in our work by, by working with excellence, by being a good testimony. We worship through our rest. We take care of our bodies. We worship through our eating. We worship through our exercise. We worship through our leisure. We worship through our relationships. Yet Just because we worship every day in that kind of a way, it doesn't mean that we don't need to gather as God's people. You know, one of the greatest infractions of the people in the Old Testament was they didn't keep the Sabbath. That's a big deal to God. God created the entire universe in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And then he wanted his people to do the same. And you know, it's not just... One commandment, it is the way God designed the universe to work. There are rhythms of creation and rest, of work and rest. That's the way God designed us. For us to to have regular rhythms of of rest and worship, he wants us to pause one day out of the week. It ought to be different than the rest of the days where we rest and we think about him. Because when we don't do that, when we don't have a regular rhythm, of, of resting and worshiping, then we begin to think that we're in charge. It, it, it is that pause once a week that reminds us who is the king, who rules, who reigns, who is worthy. The early church understood the importance of weekly gatherings. They would do it on the first day of the week because that's when Jesus appeared to them. So they would celebrate the fact that they served a risen Lord. And as they would gather and they they would worship together and they would break bread and they would sing songs, uh, they would worship. Some of them had very meaningful worship times as they gathered. Some of them were getting off track. And that's why sometimes Paul writes to correct them, like the Corinthian church. That church caused so many problems. And in a way, we're kind of glad that they did because if they didn't, we wouldn't have the Corinthian letters, right, where Paul's correcting them. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, he's correcting them. He says, what then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each one of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. These churches in the first century <clears throat> they didn't have a church building, so they met in homes. There were small groups. That means that everyone could participate. And so they all would, would be able to to be a part of this experience. I, I, I'm, I have this prayer group that I'm a part of on Sunday mornings at eight o'clock, and it's a small group, and everybody in the group gets to pray. Sometimes somebody reads scripture. Today about four people read scripture. Sometimes somebody sings. Sometimes they share a testimony of answered prayer. And that was the kind of worship that the church had in the early century. It, it felt more like a grow group than it does our Sunday gatherings. And so sometimes somebody would come in and, and they would bring a hymn or somebody would bring a scripture uh, or an insight about the scripture. Someone else might have a special revelation that the Holy Spirit gave them, especially in the days when they still didn't have the New Testament. You know that the church in the New Testament didn't have the New Testament? So, so but they had the Holy Spirit. And as they had that, those expressions in the home, they worshiped together. The problem in the church in Corinth is that some participants were competing for what they thought was the most spiritual gift. They would show up to show off their spiritual gift. They were getting filled with pride. They were self-centered. They were going to see how they could impress or, or some kind of self-seeking motive. And Paul reminds them here, when you gather, whatever you do in your gathering should build up the church. Your anticipation, your attitude, your activity should be so that others are built up. Should be so so that both guests and members are felt welcome. You know, I I heard about a man who was visiting in a town and he went to the, the local church and he didn't have, he just had his work clothes and his worn out boots. And so he went to the church and as he came in, people were looking at him from head to toe, kind of judging the way he was dressed. And he just kind of ignored him, sat down, he sang the songs, heard the sermon. And after the service, people were coming up to the pastor and said, pastor, we have a guest, but uh, he didn't dress properly. You need to talk to him. And so the pastor went up to To this guest, and he said, Hi, how are you? You're a guest today? He said, Yes. He said, Well, we're we're glad that you're here. He said, Well, I'd like to come back next Sunday. He said, Well, you're welcome to come back next Sunday. I'm just going to ask you something. He said, "Uh, During the week, would you pray and ask God how you should dress when you come to church? And the guest said, Okay, I can do that. So, uh, uh, next week came around, next Sunday, and the guest came in the church, and he was wearing the same clothes and the same boots, and and, uh, he sat down and sang the songs, heard the sermon, and pastor went up to him after the service, and he said, I'm glad you came today again for your second time. He said, "Uh, remember last Sunday I told you to pray and ask God how you should dress when you come to church? He said, yes. Well, did you do it? He said, yes. Well, what did God say to you? He said he had no idea he hadn't been here in a long time. (laughs) Sometimes we're focusing on the wrong things, Sometimes we're being judgmental or we're looking at our preferences or we're looking at what we don't like or what makes us feel uncomfortable. And then we sing like nothing. And I want to tell you, God delights in our praises. When we sing, God delights in those praises. But he delights also when we build one another up. When we're not just thinking of ourselves, but we're thinking of the people around us whether they're regular attendees or whether they're guests, God shows up when we are edifying one another. Those houses, house churches in Corinth needed to prepare. When they, when they gather, Paul says, look, when you come, you need to come with the right disposition, the right attitude. Rather than asking what you're going to show off or what you're going to get out of your worship gathering, you should ask what you should bring to the worship gathering. You could offer yourselves as living sacrifices. Our gatherings look different than the first century church, but we can ask ourselves the same thing. What can we bring to our gathering rather than what will we get out of it? We expect the musicians to, to prepare, and they should, and they do, and we're thankful for them. We expect the preacher to prepare, and he should, but all of us can prepare. All of us can come with hearts that are ready. When each individual has been worshiping God in the practical dimension, in the private dimension during the week, then when we gather for the public dimension, it will be a powerful time. When each individual that participates in our gathering comes with a disposition to encourage others, to build one another up, then our worship includes not just our songs, not just the preaching, not just the offering, but it includes our shaking hands, our greeting, our smiles, our, our encouraging people, our welcoming others. God is in that. There's a portion in Psalms that is called the Song of Ascents. Those songs are songs that the people of Israel sang when they were going up to the mountain, to the Temple Mount. That's what they call songs of ascent. And you can imagine when there was worship time in all of the villages around, that there were families that would travel from their villages up to Jerusalem, and and there were. Families. There were children running around, and men being boisterous and loud, and and women talking to one another. And as they were walking with their animals or little lambs that they were going to offer at the altar. Uh, there was this great anticipation and they would go to the next village and, and another group would join them and, and every village that they would go through on their way up to Jerusalem, the procession would get larger and larger and then they would, get to, they would begin to sing these songs of ascent, the, these songs of anticipation. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord and they will sing. Can you imagine the sounds that were made as those people marched on to Jerusalem? in this progressive walk of worship for Israel's God each step was built in anticipation you know you might be familiar with the layout of the temple in Jerusalem it was an incredible uh, piece of land and and the great temple was there was a wall around it and it had a gate and when you go through that gate you will be in the outer court It was the court where the Gentiles could could worship and where women could worship. And then you would go through another gate, a closer wall. And when you go through that gate, there would be an altar where the priests were ready to offer sacrifices. And then further in, there was a sanctuary, the holy place. And inside that, there would be the Holy of Holies where only the high priest could go once a year to offer a sacrifice. But all of this was a progression of anticipation. The people of God were singing before they got to the temple. They were worshiping before they got to the altar. They were anticipating being in the presence of God and being together as a community of believers. That's why the psalmist says enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. It is an invitation to start worship before you get to the worship service. It's an invitation to bring your worship before you get your worship. Tim Keller said the word worship is from the old English, worth-ship. The ascribing of the highest worth, whatever you value or love the most, whatever is your greatest source of significance and security, you are worshiping in your heart. Worship in church is just an expression of that. I think that's so true. If God is at the center of our worship all week long, then in our gathering, God will be at the center. God will be honored. We'll we'll edify one another. But if our week has been self-centered and self-seeking, then when we gather, that's going to affect the way we worship. I'm not saying that when you come and you gather, you have to be perfect. You have to have it all together. None of us have it together. We're all a work in progress. I'm not saying that you can't come as you are, but I am saying that what you get out of Sunday worship depends much on what you bring to it. The invitation is to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God daily, and to each other weekly, so that we can build up one another. That's true and proper worship. Let us not conform to the pattern of this world that is self-centered, consumerist-oriented, performance-driven, but let us worship God with minds and hearts that have been renewed by him. How's the public dimension of your worship? Are you gathering in anticipation of the presence of God? Are you coming with an attitude of building up each other? Are you bringing something in attitude and disposition, in preparation as you worship God? Would you bow your head for a second and think about that. When you worship in 3D, this holistic way of thinking of worship your practical worship, the way you live, your private worship, the way you pause in time alone with God, and your public worship, the way you gather to build each other up. Where is it that God is wanting you to grow? Where is it that God is asking you to make a commitment? By the mercies of God, by the grace of God, by what Jesus did on the cross, or is it that you need to grow, commit, and worship to be a living sacrifice? Maybe for the first time in your life, you need to surrender your life to Jesus as Savior and Lord. And he'll make you a temple of Holy Spirit so that worship can be a 24-7 thing for you. Maybe today's the day you trust him. Whatever your response is, I invite you to do it right now. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of our worship? Let's stand together. Father, help us to respond as your Holy Spirit leads us. In Jesus' name, amen.